Good afternoon and welcome to Bible Quest, the New York City, New Jersey Philly edition. I'm Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. And today, Joe Works, who is normally my co-host in Fairlawn, New Jersey, is not going to be with us. But in his place, we have Chase Byers, who is in Harrisburg, Virginia. Uh, Harrisburg, capital of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Good afternoon, Chase. Good to have you with us this afternoon. Thanks, Jeff. How's it going today? Very, very good. Let's take just a minute here as we get started to acquaint people with Harrisburg, where Harrisburg is and where the church meets there. Uh, and then we'll get started into our topic today. We're going to be talking about marriage and the conjugal relationship in marriage and um, talk a little bit about divorce, too. Uh, right now, we've got a title, <laughs> got a note from our webcast uh, engineer Noah, who's telling us he's got the, com the title of today's webcast right now is a conversation with Chase Byers. Um, Noah, the title is going to be uh, marriage and the conjugal relationship, I think, something like that. So Chase, where is Harrisburg? Harrisburg is the capital of Pennsylvania. It is about an hour and a half west of Philadelphia and about two and a half to three hours east of Pittsburgh uh, and about 45 minutes north of Gettysburg. So we're right in the middle of a lot of good areas. Uh, the church here is about 12 of us, and we started meeting about a year ago, but my wife and I, Rebecca, just moved here about two months ago, uh, and we're meeting at the local YMCA, East Shore YMCA, in downtown Harrisburg. Is that right on the Susquehanna River? That is right off the Susquehanna River. Yes, what would that be on the east bank of the Susquehanna River there? Uh, that would be... North Bank? <clears throat> okay. North Bank, yeah. North Bank, okay. The Susquehanna, I don't remember if it's running more north and south or east and west there. Uh, it kind of moves around. Well, it's interesting that you have to describe where Harrisburg is in relation to Gettysburg. Everybody knows about Gettysburg, but Gettysburg is a small little town. Harrisburg is the capital of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, but people know about Gettysburg more than Harrisburg, I think. Yeah, and Harrisburg is actually a lot bigger city than, than what a lot of people know. Uh, the city itself has about 50,000 people in it, but the suburbs that make up Harrisburg is about half a million people. So okay. A lot of people here. So that's half the state of Rhode Island right there. Uh, I suppose so. I wouldn't know. <laughs> when we lived in Rhode Island some years ago, the population of the state was about a million people. So, so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, it's good to have you with us today. Um, to, our, to our viewers, we're going to be talking about marriage, and we're going to be talking about the conjugal relationship and and the idea that really that belongs in marriage by God's design and outside of marriage, that is, is wrong. And uh, so we're going to start off with that. And then we'll talk a little bit about divorce and maybe talk a little bit about remarriage. Um, and if you have questions or comments, we'd appreciate your sending them to us. You can send them to us by means of the comments section on Facebook. And Noah Andrews, our webcast engineer, will get those to us. Uh, sometimes it takes just a, a little bit for us to get to your question if it comes in, so be patient with us. You, if you're at the BibleQuest.tv page, you can also just go there and use the Q&A tab and send us questions that way. We might get them a little more quickly that way, um, but we'll see how that goes. So, Chase, I was on the campus of Westchester University yesterday, have a, have a couple of Bible studies there each week, um, one or two. And as we were walking to the room where we were going to be meeting in the student center, there was a sign up. I don't remember what the sign said exactly. It was something about condoms, and it was talking about um, uh, safe sex on campus or safe campus sex or something like that. And the, and the presumption was clearly all of these students are having sexual relations 
and here's here's the safe way to do this. Be sure and get these condoms. Um, I think there are a lot of people today who just think the idea that having sexual relations outside of marriage uh, is wrong, who think that that idea is old-fashioned, or who's, maybe to put it another way, who think that the idea that sexual relations only belong in marriage, that that's an old-fashioned idea, that maybe people 2,000 years ago thought that way, but that that's not the way it is today. Is the world decidedly different today than it was 2,000 years ago in terms of sexual morality? No, I, I would say we're right about in the same boat. Uh, I think that it's always been a problem in our society and in our culture to think that sexual relations is just a social aspect to a, a relationship with someone. There's really no big deal, no strings attached kind of mentality. And there's not a lot of difference in what we read about in the first century <clears throat> in regard to sexual immorality and fornication to a lot of what we're seeing today in our world. One of the indications of this, if you could imagine a world like today uh, where the gospel was going to be presented and if part of the gospel message was going to be sexual relations belong only in marriage, if if that were a, a, a a message going to be presented to today's world, that would kind of have to be harped on a little bit because that's not the way people think. And interestingly, when we look at the Bible, when we look at the writings in the New Testament, that message is harped on. I don't know, have you ever thought about just going through Paul's letters? How many of the letters uh, talk about fornication? What is wrong with sexual relations outside of marriage? Have you ever just sat down and done that calculation? Yeah, I mean, it seems to be every epistle, Paul, even in a small way or in a larger way, like in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, he addresses it on a larger scale, or he just has to mention it. Yeah. Uh, or even if you think back to the book of Acts, when they had to write a letter um, from Jerusalem, it, what did they say to abstain from? Not only the sacrifice to idols, but stay away from fornication. That, that's a good point. Here they're trying to write a letter which basically says you don't have to keep the law of Moses, but there are some basic things we need to remind you. If you're going to be a Christian, you've got to stay away from. And so to the Gentile world, it was, it was just as important to mention sexual sin as it was idolatry. Good point. Well, all right, so let's just think through the epistles of Paul. Romans is, is sexual immorality. Well, first of all, you know what, before, the, before we do that, let's define fornication. Let's, let's talk about what fornication is. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 13. You know where I'm going. Yeah, yeah, Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to be looking around verse 4, I'd imagine. Uh, right around verse 4, <laughs> right, in fact, right on verse 4. Uh, let Mary, And I, I'll read it from the translation. What translation do you use, Chase? New American Standard Bible. Okay, I'm going to read it from the American Standard, and then you read it from the New American Standard. The American Standard says, Let marriage be had in honor among all, and let the bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Now, what does yours say? New American Standard Bible says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Wow, is that the American Standard or the New American Standard? New American Standard Bible. And it uses the word fornicators. That's right, yeah. I I didn't realize it did it there. I I was thinking usually the New American Standard used the term sexual immorality or something like that. It will in some cases, if I'm not mistaken, and I'm sure we'll get to Matthew 19.9 in a little while, but it will use that phrase as well. 
But in this passage, we do see a contrast. On the one hand, you've got marriage and the marriage bed. And in marriage, the marriage bed is undefiled. In other words, the sexual relationship is good and proper and holy. In contrast to that, there's fornication and adultery. And so right off the bat, we understand fornication is sexual relations outside of marriage. Yeah, any kind of physical contact that's going to be made between two individuals. Um, And there's a lot of people who, who disagree about what fornication exactly is. But it seems to be clear here, like you were showing in the contrast, it's things that happen in the marriage bed. And then, and then when we talk about adultery, we're really talking about a particular circumstance where one of the partners involved in, a fornica- in fornication or in a sexual relationship outside of marriage, one of those people uh, belongs to somebody else in marriage. In other words, th- there's a marriage covenant that's being violated. Yes, exactly. And even on the other hand of that, too, you have the one, let's say you have a man or woman or someone that is committing fornication with a married person. They, too, in that case, would be an adulterer. Exactly. Okay. So fornication, sexual sin, sexual relations outside of marriage, and adultery talks about that when one of those parties is married to somebody else or when, well, I guess that's it. When one of those parties is married to somebody else, then both of those parties involved are committing adultery. All right, so with with that in mind now, let's think about the letters of Paul, and let's just go through an order in the New Testament. In Romans, does Paul deal with fornication? Is is there a warning against it in Romans? Yeah, right off the bat, Paul has to come out of the gate talking to the pagan Gentiles. There in Romans 1, uh, in verse 26, he says, For this reason God gave them over to uh, degrading passions, For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So he comes off the bat talking about fornication. So, so, all right. And, and there we're talking about specific, the kind of fornication there is homosexual. But then if we come on over to Romans, the 13th chapter, uh, where Paul talks about the night is, is far spent, the day is at hand, and he's, he's talking about the night is the time of the works of darkness, the works of sin. Leave that behind, and let's move forward and do the works of light. And he says in verse 12, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk becomingly as in the day, not in reveling. What does yours say where mine says reveling? Does it say wild parties, or what does it say? This is verse. Uh, it says not in sexual promiscuity. For the very well, that's a little bit later, isn't it? Uh, let us walk becomingly as in the day, not in what's the first thing it mentions? Oh yes, I'm sorry, carousing and drunkenness. Carousing and drunkenness. Mine says reveling and drunkenness, and then the next term mine has is chambering, and yours has sexual promiscuity. Yes, that is correct. All right. So again, uh, we've got a passage here in the book of Romans where Paul is talking about. Uh, the fact there are restraints on our sexual expression. And it's not simply that there have to be two consenting adults. It's, it's that outside of marriage, sexual relations are wrong. How about 1 Corinthians? Uh, you mentioned 1 Corinthians a little bit ago. Yeah, yeah. You go over to 1 Corinthians, and of course, Paul is addressing a, a, a litany of problems that the Corinthians and the brethren at Corinth seem to be facing. And he comes off in chapter 5, and he tells us about uh, one of the brethren there, chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you. And immorality of such kind 
as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And so Paul makes it clear to them and, and to us even that there was some man who had his father's wife and was sleeping with her and uh, having sexual relations with her. And Paul goes on to, in verse 6, uh, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? He talks about that this man needs to be corrected or this sin needs to be cast out of the church. Um, and there, come on into, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, and then Paul is making the point there is no room for this kind of behavior in the Lord's church. And, and then we come on into chapter 6, and in chapter 6 he talks about various behaviors. Those who practice them will not inherit the kingdom of God. And right off the bat, in verse 9, be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, and then a couple of terms that refer particularly to homosexual activity. And he says people who do these things, like thieves and extortioners and so on, will not inherit the kingdom of God. He does say something interesting here. He says in verse 11, such were some of you, but you were uh, washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So if someone is guilty of homosexual sin or if someone is guilty of heterosexual sin, in fornication, in other words, generally, whether heterosexual or homosexual, does he have any hope of, of going to heaven? He has none. Paul makes it very clear, and it makes a very definitive statement. Those who practice these things, they're not going to inherit. Um, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now let me ask a different question. Can he get hope of going to heaven? Absolutely he can. And that, hence Paul saying in verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed. You, we have the ability through Jesus Christ to have our sins washed away. But the part of the key is, and I believe it's something we're going to talk about a little bit later in regard to divorce and yeah. after, is repentance. Yeah. Turning away from that sin. And, and that's indicated here. It doesn't say, and such are some of you, but you were washed, sanctified, justified. It's such were some of you but you were washed, sanctified, and justified. So, all right, here's an individual who's living, we can use an old-fashioned expression, living in sin, fornication. Um, and this person, he, this person needs to stop committing the sin so that it can be said he was such, but that's not enough. He needs to be cleansed from his sin. He needs to be forgiven of his sin. That sin needs to be removed from his record so he can stand sanctified in God's eyes and justified, sanctified, wholly separated from sin, justified, stand uh, without the stain of, of guilt of the sin on his record. And so he says, you were washed. How are we washed? Well, I think Paul is implying that we are washed from our sins. Our, our sins are forgiven through baptism, having them washed away to walk and have a relationship with the Father. And when we have those sins washed away, what good does it do us to walk right back into those sins and be filthy again? Exactly. And of course, we're, our sins are washed away at baptism because we're being baptized into Christ's death, and it's Christ's death, it's his blood that, that is the atonement for our sins. All right, so, and there's more said about this in 1 Corinthians. He goes on and he talks about the fact down in verse 19, you're a temple of, of, of the Holy Spirit. Um, you're, you are not your own. You were bought with a price uh, in verse 20. Glorify God in your body. In other words, I shouldn't have the attitude that, well, I know God and I talk to God and with my mind I serve God. But what I do with my body is really not relevant because my body is my own. Paul actually 
deals with that idea right here. And apparently the Corinthians had a similar idea. I, I take verse 18, the phrase, every sin that a man does is without the body, as the Corinthians' motto. You know, their idea was um, sin doesn't really involve what my body does. It's something spiritual. It's something mental. And Paul says, no, your body belongs to God. And you're sinning against your body if you commit fornication. Yeah, and, and these brethren, they seem to have overlooked that fact. They think that Christianity is a state of mind and not a state of body, uh, what we do. What about 2 Corinthians? So we've gone, we, and we're going to have to move a little faster here, but Romans, 1 Corinthians, first two letters by the Apostle Paul that are in our New Testaments in the order in which they appear. In both those letters, he's telling people sexual sin, sexual relations outside of marriage, that's wrong. What about 2 Corinthians? Yeah, uh, Paul would have brought that up. I'm trying to find the chapter if you want to mention it for chapter me. Chapter 12, chapter 12. There's a, it's, it's a brief mention here, but it's in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 21, uh, starting in the middle of a verse, lest again when I come my God should humble me before you and I should mourn for many of them that have sinned heretofore and not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. So we got Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. <coughs> does Paul warn against sexual sin in Galatians? Sure he does. At the end of, of chapter 5, you get toward the end, and he talks about the works of the flesh. And three of those that he mentions are immorality, impurity, and sensuality. At the end of verse 21 of chapter 5, he says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. How about Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 5, and in Ephesians chapter 5, it's in verse 3. Fornication and uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as becometh saints. How about Colossians? Um, not in Philippians. We skip Philippians. There's no reference, as I recall, to fornication in Philippians. If I'm overlooking that, some of you who are watching the webcast today, call it to our attention. But how about Colossians? Yep. Colossians chapter 3. Yeah, uh, Colossians 3 over in, uh, I'm trying to get my finger on it. Sorry, Jeff. That's all right. It took me a minute to spot it too, but I've got it. It's verse 5. Okay. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Now, let's just take a moment to take stock of where we are. We've gone through Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. That's seven letters to different audiences. And in six of those, Paul has had to warn against sexual relations outside of marriage you start to get the idea this was a problem in that world, and when people became Christians, they had to learn a different way of living than the world around them lived. Well, let's go on. How about First Thessalonians? Yeah, chapter 4, Paul addresses this yet again. Verse, verse 3. Yep, there you go. For this and, is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, in 2 Thessalonians, I don't see any, any clear specific reference to fornication or to sexual sin specifically. But when we come to 1 Timothy, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, we certainly have a reference to sexual sin. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10, for fornicators, for abusers of themselves with men, and so on. These are those for whom the law is made. Um, we come to 2 Timothy and I don't recall, there are certainly some kind of general warnings uh, about self-control and that sort of thing. I don't see anything that I could point to that specifically indicates uh, he's talking about 
well, that would be clear to an audience coming from the Gentile world that sexual relations outside of marriage are what he's talking about. So we'll put that in the same category as Philippians and Second Thessalonians. How about Titus? Or do you have something? No, 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 no. Go ahead. Go ahead. How about Titus? Yep, Titus. And again, I'm trying to put my finger on it. Chapter three, is it? I'm trying to remember too. Uh, I was thinking there was a reference here in Titus. Um, well, maybe I'm not thinking, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we don't have a reference. This worldly lusts mentioned in chapters two and verse, tw- chapter two and verse 12. Um, I was thinking three, three, but I, again, I don't think that's more specific. Not as specific. And then Philemon would be the last one where we don't. All right. So let's, let's take, let's take count now. Let's go through them. So, uh, you count the ones where he didn't, and I'll count the total number, all right? Okay. So you keep track as we go. So Romans, he did. So Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians, he didn't. So you, you count that. Yep. Um, uh, okay, how, how far did we just get? We just got to Philippians. So Philippians, okay. Uh, Colossians, he does. 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, he does. 2 Thessalonians, he doesn't, right? So right. Yeah. First Timothy, he does. Second Timothy and Titus, we said he didn't. And Philemon, we said he didn't, right? Yeah, so that gives us five where he did not. And eight where he did. So a total of 13 letters and eight of them he has to warn people about. So just If you were going to write a letter to 13 churches, one letter to each church, and not all of these are to churches, granted. Titus is an individual. Timothy is an individual. Um, but let's suppose you're going to write a letter to 13 different churches, just to state, take stock of the fact for just a moment that he lived in a world where in eight of them, it was necessary to warn them, you cannot be having sexual relations outside of marriage. And, and Jeff, I mean, let's just take the 13 churches we got to write to today. What are we going to want to write about the most? I think it's the same thing. It's the same exact thing. And it's a testimony to the fact that the world we live in is really no different than the world it was that was then. And the world we live in today is a world wherein people think of sexual relations as just something you do. And marriage is optional. And, and that's something contrary to what the Bible teaches. Maybe, maybe it might be worthwhile to just take a moment to put this in, in perspective. Is this a matter of God just saying, well, I've got to have some rules here. We can't have everybody going to heaven. Let's see, what could be some rules we could make up to make sure that not everybody gets to heaven? Is that what this is about? No, not at all. And I think we see the wisdom in having one spouse and having our relations, our sexual relations with that one person. The amount of trust that's built in that relationship from that blessing from God is amazing. And we look at the the consequences of sexual license. Uh, We look at illegitimate pregnancies, unwanted children. Uh, We look at uh, relationships that break up because people have not committed to each other for life. And then you look at jealousies. Uh, You look at all kinds of emotional, uh, mental health issues, um, emotional ramifications. You look at disease, sexually transmitted disease, all of the ramifications of sexual relations outside of marriage. What God did was, he intended for there to be a family unit where two people, ideally a husband and a wife, come together and they create a bond. They, they form a union committed for life, and into that relationship they can bring children where there's going to be a stable home 
don't we all understand the importance of having a stable home, how important that is for children to grow up, knowing who their parents are, knowing that my daddy today is going to be my daddy tomorrow. And, and you have that situation where you have two people bound together in marriage and they share this relationship only with each other, this, this conjugal relationship. And that's the wisdom of God. And when you look at sin in general, sin oftentimes, if not all the time, is a perversion of a blessing that God has given us. And fornication fits in that same boat. All right. So what we've done so far, we've said the sexual relationship belongs in marriage. We know that in the world generally, a lot of people don't understand that. But it's, it's a fallacy to think it's just an old-fashioned idea. It's the way God made us. And it, it, was, it seemed like an old-fashioned idea in the first century. Uh, people then were living sexually promiscuous lives. But those who became Christians had to do differently. Now, let's talk about uh, what the Bible says about marriage. We, we have a little thing that we often say in a marriage ceremony, uh, till death do you part. Uh, where's that idea come from? The idea of death do you part, I believe, comes from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and of course, once God recognizes in verse 18 that it's not good for the man to be alone, I will make him a helper suitable for him. We see that God and, and Adam, they see all the creatures, and they see that none of them were good enough for Adam. And of course, God, as the story goes in verse 21, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so, this, oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. It's just going to say that this passage in no way, shape, or form has any kind of clause in it that would make us think that this isn't for marriage or this isn't for life. Well, and there's this idea of cleaving together. It's not the idea of first, first time I decide I'm no longer in love with her, I'm going to go look for something else. No, I'm to cleave to her. It's the idea of the rib being taken out of the side of man and from that formed a woman, and now they come together in marriage. It's the idea of two parts of a whole coming back together and they form a unit and they are to cleave together in that way. Um, we come to the new Testament. Of course, Jesus refers to this passage when he is asked about divorce. So as we go to the new Testament, let, let me remind our viewers, we'd be delighted if you have some comments or questions, send them to us uh, by means of the comment section in the Facebook page. Noah Andrews will get those to us, but Take us over to, I don't know, you mentioned Matthew, the 19th chapter a little bit earlier. The Pharisees have come to Jesus, and they're asking him if it's lawful to put away uh, one's wife for every cause. And I guess let me preface this with just this observation. Divorce, just like sexual promiscuity was rampant in the first century, so also was divorce. They had marriages, but people divorced frequently. Um as a matter of fact, there is a, uh, in, in the Jewish Talmud, uh, which was written after the first century, but seems to contain traditions that are likely embodied in what's known as the traditions of the elders in the New Testament. There were oral traditions that got written down eventually. There is a whole tractate. Uh, if you go into a library and you find 
the volumes of the, the Talmud, you'll find one whole volume and labeled Gittin, which is divorce. And the whole thing is just a discussion of on a case by case situation, how, how to divorce your wife, what, what, what are acceptable procedures and what are not. Uh, for instance, the, the way they divorced then, they didn't go into a court of law with a lawyer and sue for divorce. They just wrote out a statement saying, uh, I hereby declare that I'll no longer have relationships with this woman. She's free to become the wife of another man. But you had to follow certain rules to, to deliver this. And so there's the question, what if you fall down in a pit and while you're in the bottom of the pit, you decide you want to divorce your wife? If you yell, I divorce my wife, is that adequate? And, and you wouldn't have a whole volume discussing those kinds of things in a society where divorce was rare. We're talking about a society where divorce is rampant enough that you might worry about if I want to divorce my wife while I'm in a pit. <laughs> How do I do that? Yeah. And Josephus, who is a famous historian from the first century, mentions he was twice divorced and thrice remarried. So in that environment, in that context, the Pharisees come to Jesus, who has been teaching that divorce is wrong. And, and it seems that this is another one of these occasions where they would like for him to take a stand that goes against what the people understood to be the teaching of Moses. And so they ask, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Because that was the generally accepted idea that you could. And they thought they had scripture to support that. And so Jesus responds, and in his response, he goes back to Genesis. So take us back there, and then I'll check. We've got a question coming in from a viewer we'll get to in a minute here. Sure, yeah. So Jesus, like Jeff pointed out, he's addressing these Pharisees who ask a, what seems like a silly question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And Jesus quotes from what we just read in Genesis 2. Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So we've got a question that ties right into that. Uh, J Jason says, uh, Is there any difference between what man does in cleaving together and what God does in binding the couple together? And I think Matthew 19 actually indicates that there is a difference. Uh, not, not that they are contradictory, but that, uh, they are corollary. In Matthew 19th chapter, which you just read, what God hath joined together, uh, let no man put asunder, is the way the American Standard says it. So there's a joining that God does. He recognizes two people as, as husband and wife. They are now a unit. And then they, therefore, have a responsibility to stay together. And that doesn't mean just stay in the same house, but work to create a harmonious union and to cleave to one another and to be one flesh and to be one flesh to, to unite sexually and to unite emotionally. Um, and so the, the cleaving is what man has a responsibility to do, and the binding is God's uh, recognition of this union. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I've got two things I'll point out. The first one, to answer and help this question along, let's think back to John the Baptist and the run-in he had with Herod. Yeah. Can a man do all that he wants to make sure he's cleaving to a woman? Can he 
do everything that's required of him to make sure that that's going to be fully his dedication is to that woman? Absolutely he can. But does that, in the eyes of God, is that a good marriage? Is he going to bind together? In other words, can you cleave? In other words, can you cleave to someone to whom you have no right to cleave? Yeah, of course you can. You can yeah. try your hardest. And so, in the scenario you're talking about, John the Baptist referred to Herodias, uh, Herod's wife, as the wife of his brother Philip. He had married his brother Philip's wife, and so she really belonged to Philip. And now Herod's married her. Herod's cleaving to her, but God has not bound. Herod and Herodias together. And the other thing I'd like to point out just from the passage here, I would like to just see and, uh, and point out how firmly Jesus answered this. And he didn't even bring up the thing about Moses in Deuteronomy 24. Jesus no. was going to let what Genesis 2 said <laughs> be his final word. Exactly. Exactly. And so then they do bring it up. They bring up Moses and it's a reference to Deuteronomy 24 where Moses does not, command that people put away their wives. Moses really doesn't even say it's all right to put away your wives, but he deals with the situation where a man does put away his wife and gives her a writing of divorcement, such as we described earlier. And what Moses says is, what the law of Moses says in Deuteronomy 24 is, if then that woman goes and is joined to another man and he either puts her away or he dies, the first man can't take the woman back. That's the gist of, that's the upshot of what the law of Moses said. But the Pharisees refer to that as a proof text for saying, well, it seems it's all right to divorce your wife. And Jesus says, starting in verse 8, Moses, for your hardness of heart, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it has not been so. Referring right back to what you were talking about, Chase, back there in Genesis chapter 2. Yeah, yeah, and then, of course, Jesus is trying to show them that this was never going to be the way it should have been. Every man should have been joined to his wife, and that should have been it. And then he says, whosoever puts away his wife except for fornication and shall marry another commits adultery. So here's something interesting. Why does Jesus say that? He is dealing with their idea that, well, Moses said it's all right to divorce and, and, and give her, and when they divorced, they would give a writing of divorcement that would say, I hereby declare I'll have no further relations with this woman. She's free to marry somebody else. And Jesus says, no, the reality is when you put away your wife and marry somebody else, you're an adulterer. And in Matthew 5, he says you make her an adulteress when she marries somebody else is the idea. And so now let's talk about this. If I had another conversation yesterday, I told you about my uh, visit to Westchester University, but um, had another conversation with a man yesterday, and he was talking about the congregation where he worships. It's an in- interesting conversation. It's a, it's a very conservative group, apparently. It's kind of an Amish Mennonite combination group. And, and he meets with them and likes the congregation a lot, but he can't take communion there because he divorced his first wife and married a second woman. And, um, and so that's what Jesus is talking about here. Whosoever puts away his wife, not for fornication, and marries another, commits adultery. In his mind, though, he's forgiven of that. He realizes it was wrong. He shouldn't have done it. He shouldn't have divorced the first wife. 
and he shouldn't then have married the second wife, and that was wrong. But in his mind, well, what's done is done. I can ask God to forgive me, and God will forgive me. Yeah, and that, that's certainly a very, very popular view of the Bible and what Jesus says about marriage. Uh, but I would like just to think for a second along that line. Uh, we mentioned John the Baptist and his, uh, his dealings with Herod. I'd like to point out that Jesus, not too, too long after, or uh, excuse me, before, rather, um, in Mark chapter 6, in verse 12, it says, they went out and preached that men should repent. I do not think it's a coincidence at all that Mark includes the story long after we hear about John the Baptist in the first chapter, but he includes this story right here. I believe this is a picture of repentance, what we're going to be doing in order to be right before the Lord whenever we go to obey the gospel. And in this case, it was that Herod, he did not have a right to have this woman as his wife. But rather, he needed to repent and turn away from that. Yeah, and clearly Herod and Herodias seemed to understand the import of, of what John was saying, that he, John was not calling up upon them merely to say, oh, we're sorry we ever got married, but here we are now, this is where we are. They were not to, to stay together. Um, one of the things that I want to stress here is that I think sometimes people get focused on the wedding and they think that, you know, when Jesus says, whosoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery. When they think of marrying another, they're thinking of the wedding ceremony. Oh, I shouldn't have had that wedding ceremony and gotten married. But when Jesus says commits adultery, he's not redefining adultery to mean a wedding ceremony. He's using adultery in the same way that it, it was used in Hebrews 13, verse 4, for example. It is that sexual, sexual relationship, that conjugal relationship um, between two people where they don't have a right to one another, and in fact, one of them belongs to somebody else. And that's Jesus' point here. When you put away your wife, she still belongs to you. And when you go and marry somebody else, now you're having sexual relations with somebody other than the one to whom you belong, and that's adultery. So if I'm going to turn from that sin, Chase, do you remember when we were in 1 Corinthians 6 and it talked about fornicators and adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? And he says, such were some of you. We made that point earlier. Yeah, of course. And of course, that had to do with repentance. They turned away from those things. You can't, you can't continue being a thief. You can't continue being an extortioner. You can't, you can't continue to commit the sexual sin. And that's the problem in this new relationship. So I can't just say, well, God, I'm sorry I ever got married. Please forgive me. And then go on continuing in the sin, which is the relationship. I mean, if we really, and we do see adultery as sinful as we would see an alcoholic or, or any other type of sin, would you ever look at an alcoholic and say, okay, you've repented of that sin and you've become a child of God, now you can go on drinking. Right, 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 right. Now, let me play the other side of this just to hash this out. Um, what I've said, I believe, is what the Bible teaches, but now somebody comes along and rightly says, well, repentance there's some times where you can repent, but you can't undo what's been done. For example, if I murder somebody, um, I can't undo what I've done, but I can repent, can't I? Because repentance is a change of heart. And if I have a change of heart, 
and I acknowledge that when I killed that person, that was wrong, and I, I humble myself before God, and I say, I will never do that again. I repented even though I can't undo it, right? And I would argue, yes, that is true. You can't undo that. They are married. But if someone is saying, and they are right, that repentance is a change of heart, a change of heart leads to a change of action. And, and here, the action in the adulterous relationship is something I can change. Right. I can that quit person. the adulterous relationship. I can quit committing sin. I can quit committing adultery. And that's a hard thing to do. In this passage in Matthew 19, there's some indication that the disciples were struck with the, the, with the implications as being demanding, as, as being something that they thought, wow, that's, you're really asking a lot, Jesus. Uh, and, and I think we see that starting in verse 10. Maybe if you would read verses 10 through 12. Sure, yeah. Uh, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs to whom it has been given. For there are, or excuse me, for there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept me. So it seems that they're kind of taken aback, like, wow, that's, that's heavy. That's heavy, Lord. It, it, you might as well not even get married. And, and maybe there's a little question. Are they saying, don't get married in the first place? Or are they saying, well, then it sounds like you just better not get married again if you put away your wife, not for fornication. Either way, they seem a little bit taken aback. And Jesus affirms that, yes, this is, this is difficult. Not all men are able to receive it. And he doesn't mean that it's all right. If you can't receive this, well, then just ignore it. But he goes on to make the point that, you know, there's some people who are going to just have to choose to be celibate. And the way he sets it up is he talks about some people who have to be celibate, either because of, of a birth defect or because of a surgery. And then he says some people have to choose to be celibate. So the way he says that, there are eunuchs who are so from their mother's womb. A eunuch is a castrated man. You might have somebody who through a birth defect has an incapacity, and he's going to live a, a celibate life. And then he talks about eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. In those days, they were, uh, it was not uncommon for men in the service of some king or queen to be um, uh, castrated and to be serving in that capacity then. And so they're, they're considered eunuchs uh, made by men, by surgery. And so then he says, and there are some who are going to be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Not that they're literally castrated, but they're going to have to live a celibate life. So what Jesus is saying, yes, this is hard, but if you're going to, to be a, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and you're in this situation, that's what you're going to have to do. Those who, who are able to receive this, let them receive it. And I'll point this out too. Like manner, I think Mark he used a literary, you know, talking about repentance shows a picture. Not too long after we see Jesus talking about this, we have the example of the rich young ruler who just could not and would not do it. He couldn't give it all up. No one ever said Christianity was going to be an easy thing to do. Amen to that. Amen. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. We're not saying here that Christianity is is just a dreary way of life. But the fact is, we are called upon to present our bodies as living sacrifices. Um, there's the expression of Jesus, take up your cross, put, put your old life to death on the cross. 
uh, be, cru- be, be crucified with Christ. And that's what the Lord calls upon us to do. I'd like to point out one other thing from two different perspectives. We take the person, for instance, who has been put away, and maybe their husband has just left them or wife has just left them, and they realize that they have no right to marry. Um, That might be hard for them to swallow. But when we see it from the standpoint, you know, a drunk driver might have killed your daughter. That was nothing you could control. And yet you're having to face the consequences of that person's sin. Right. And then on the other side of that, you also have the idea Maybe you have sinned in your past and became a child of God later in life. There's consequence to sin, even if it's in our past. Right. Chase, thank you for those comments. We've got a couple of comments and questions from viewers we're not going to have time to get to today. We're out of time for our webcast today. But thank you for, thank you for listening, and we want to thank Noah, our webcast engineer, for uh, getting things started and running smoothly after we had a little bit of a rough start that our viewers didn't know about in trying to get the show going. Joe Works is not feeling well today, but uh, we pray he'll get well soon and be able to be back with us next week. Thank you, Chase. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you all for listening, and uh, Lord willing, we'll see you next week. And uh, look for you at 3 p.m. 3 p.m. Wednesday afternoon. Bye-bye.